Well, I know I've said it a couple of times, but I'm going to say it again. Haven't you appreciated Wesley this week? Yeah. I have really enjoyed being with him. He, he's been very easy to work with. You know, you can tell when someone is in tune, not just, not just singing, uh, but in tune with what God wants to do because God has a way of orchestrating things, putting things together, and I'm always appreciative of that. I mean, there are times you work with people and you wonder, where did that come from? Okay, well, I've had that experience. Maybe you haven't, uh, but I have been thankful for him. Thank you, brother. Um, it's my last opportunity to say that because Sunday morning he has responsibilities, and when you have that kind of talent, you don't want to let them go for two Sundays in a row. Well, I'm glad you're here, and what a difference a day makes. I mean, can you believe it was so humid last night and it's so pleasant this morning? I'm thankful that you're here, and I'm thankful that God has, has kind of taken care of the temperature for us and all that sort of thing, and I'm excited to share with you from Exodus chapter 1, if you have your Bible, Exodus chapter 1. I, I had um, mentioned a, a couple mornings ago that uh, in January of 2021, I began down a path of looking at some stories in the Old Testament. That journey has actually turned into a writing project with my writing partner that um, a working title for the work we're working on is things you didn't learn in Sunday school. Uh, the agent and the publisher will change that name. It never works out to keep it, but I, I mean, it has the idea of these stories. Many of us will be familiar with them, but some of them not so much so. And just to remind us of some of these incredible stories of God's people throughout the old, because you understand you can't disregard the old and only embrace the new. You do realize that, and we have a tendency of focusing in the new. This is the story of God's people from beginning to the end, and we are all in that story. And so it does us well to look back and to remember. And as I was thinking about this morning, I, I, want to, I actually want to read to you chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. I won't do that, um, but we will read all of chapter 1 together. And so if, you, if you've turned there, uh, let's read God's Word. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. 
But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other, Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, if it's a boy, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, for they're lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dwelt with the midwives, well with the midwives, And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. And thus begins the story of Moses. You're familiar with that. Jesus, this morning we're thankful for all that you've done for us. We're thankful for these days that you've given us in this place to be in your presence and for the way that we've sensed you very near. I sense you near this morning. We, we know that there's a word that you want to speak to us. There's something that you want to do in our lives. So have your way. Help us to receive it. Help us to respond. And because of that response, be changed. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. It's really kind of been fun uh, to go back through some of these familiar stories and some not so familiar and to be reminded of how God moved throughout the history of his children. And when you think about the stories of God's redemption, really beginning from Genesis all the way through, there are many names that, that uh, come to mind. Many that we would probably refer to as heroes of faith or, or heroes of that story. So many that are familiar, but then there are others not so much so. For example, what we read today, there are two that we come across that really long before Shadrach, Meshach, or a billy goat, just like to see if you're listening, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego refused to bow before Nebuchadnezzar, or before Daniel was placed within the lion's den, or many years actually before Peter and John stood tall before the Sanhedrin, or Paul found himself in prison for following Jesus, there was Shifra and Pua. Shifra, a name meaning fair one or beautiful. Pua, last, little girl, or splendid, we read about in this passage Their names really are less than memorable, and they're certainly not impressive. And can I just say here, aren't you thankful that your mom and dad didn't name you Pua? (laughs) 
I mean, that would be a stigma you wouldn't want to walk around with. I mean, maybe at camp, you'd be, never mind. But I, I mean, all those sorts of things. I, I mean, their names are not very impressive. But yet we see in the story of God's redemption, they stand out because what they did is they stood up to the powerful. And because they stood to the powerful of that day, their names are recorded for us and for all generations to learn their story. They were simply midwives. And you know, because you've watched Call the Midwife, I've never watched an episode of that in my life. I don't even know why I threw that in there. I'll never do it again, I promise you. You know, because of the role of the midwife, their job was to assist in the birthing of babies. They were the ones that would ensure that everything was in place when that time came for the lady. They would make sure that the mother's health and well-being were cared for while they would make sure that throughout the birthing process that these children, these babies, were healthy when they were born. It really was, whether we realize it or not, an honored position. For they were even the ones that were given the privilege of announcing the sex of that child. They would be the first ones to say, it's a boy or it's a girl. They really were the first, and because of that, we know that it carries with it a lot of responsibility. And as I said before, in this role, and it's a really powerful thing because most people uh, would suggest that these were not Hebrew women. They were likely Egyptian women who even though they had an honored position, and when we watch Shifra and Pua, I mean, Pharaoh literally speaks to them personally, so it was likely that they were head midwives. Yet we watch them as they have the role of serving the subservient. So they become subservient to the subservient people. It's really important because we see they risk everything to do the right thing. But before we get to them, we need to remember their role in the context of what's going on. And really, we can't get around the beginning that we read, or at least the end of the beginning of chapter 1 of verse 1. Now, you'll recall that Egypt is where you find the children of Israel for some 430 years. In fact, when you look between verses 7 and 8, centuries have passed. There's been a lot of time that have gone under the bridge. A lot of water has passed. And you'll remember the story of how we come to this point because it's a story that many of us become familiar with as children. It's the story of Joseph, the dreamer. Uh, you remember, he is the one that God gave big dreams. We love to talk about that, but even though God gave him big dreams, it seems in my mind God didn't give him good sense at one point, or at least in some manners, because we know that Joseph was the favored son. We know that his father doted over him. I mean, it's obvious by the way things happen. And then as God began, the father began to give him these dreams, 
Not only did his brothers realize that, that his father, I mean, his brothers knew everything that his dad did for him that he didn't do for them, but now Joseph begins to share the dreams that he's been given, and in these dreams, it seems as though the brothers are going to bow down to him. Do you know that's not wise to tell your older brothers that? How many of you have older siblings? I have an older brother. How many of you are the baby of the family? See, that's why everybody else holds things against us. Because mom and dad loves us more. And that's the case that's going on here. And the brothers come to the place where they decide they've had enough. And you know the scheme. We don't have to labor it. They decide they're going to get rid of their younger brother. How do they do it? They throw him in the pit. They originally were going to kill him, but we watch as they choose just to throw him there. And then when a gang of Ishmaelites are beginning to pass by, they see an opportunity to make some coin. And so what do they do? They sell their brother into slavery. You know the story. That path leads him to the house of Potiphar. And it's amazing when you read about Joseph. He never walked away from God, and God never left him. In fact, over and over again, it, you feel the, the, the language when it says that God was pleased with Joseph. God was with Joseph. And we see his favor shown upon him in his faithfulness because even as a servant in Potiphar's house, he finds favor in the eyes of his master. I mean, he's, he's, he's shown favor and all these, but the bad thing is, is that he also finds favor in Potiphar's wife's eyes. And because he refuses her sexual advances, he's lied about and he winds up in prison. You know the story. It's in prison where he meets a lot of interesting characters. Times pass. He meets, the, uh, he meets the baker. He meets the candlestick maker. I'm confusing my stories this morning, aren't I? I mean... I know it's not the candlestick maker, the cupbearer, all those sorts of things. And you know that these men are troubled by dreams that are going on. They're having those dreams. They can't make sense of it. Well, Joseph can interpret them. And he does that. And we see that it turns out good for one, not so good for the other. One of them physically loses their head. The other one returns to his position. And when he leaves, Joseph says, don't forget about me. Don't, don't forget about me. I mean, speak favorably of me, but it seems as though he's forgotten until Pharaoh himself begins to become troubled with dreams. And then all of a sudden, he says, oh yeah, I know a guy. And so he's brought from prison up to Pharaoh. He hears the dreams. Now, I'm not doing a good job telling the story, but you're thankful because you know I'm long-winded and we'd be here all afternoon. But we see that because of these dreams, Joseph interprets that famine is coming. We see that he finds favor in Pharaoh's eyes, and as Andrew Lloyd Webber would say, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. He prepares for this famine. God put him in the right place at the right time, and we see that famine comes and then all of a sudden, the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, they find themselves on the brink of starving to death. 
The famine has hit them hard, so we watch them as they make their way to Egypt land to grovel for grain. And while they're there, we see them. Now, this is so powerful. They don't know who they're groveling to. They don't know Joseph, but Joseph knows them. And I think about this story, and I think about everything that's gone on in Joseph's life. Now, I can't remember. Maybe some of you can help me out. I don't remember if it was 7 or 13 years from the time that Joseph was thrown in the pit to where he's standing by Pharaoh. But if it's only 7, if it's 13, whatever it may be, that's a long period of time. And when the source of all that pain was groveling before me, I think I would have lowered the hammer just a little bit more. I mean, he has fun with them, but I would have lowered the hammer. I would have made them pay. And you can sit there and look holy. You can sit there and act as though you wouldn't do it. But you know what? Don't judge me because it's biblical. Remember what the Word of God says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's all the way you emphasize the verse, right? Well, anyhow... I know that's not what that means. But anyhow, we watch that they're groveling. And it's through this beautiful statement that that comes from this story that Joseph makes that I have found true in my life. He looks at his brothers, the source of all this pain, and he says, you all meant this for evil, but God used it for good. Can we just say this morning, aren't you thankful that we have a God that can take what the enemy would use for evil, that he would use to destroy us, and he can turn it around and work it for the good. He can make what the enemy would destroy life-giving. And we see that it's from this occasion that the children of Israel ends up in Egypt. They flourish. They're honored guests until time begins to pass. And then the text tells us that as time passes, as centuries goes by, as Joseph is no more, his brothers are no more, and the Pharaoh that they had this great, as those things are gone, the stories of how things happened are forgotten as well. And there arises a king There's a new Pharaoh, and it's important to remember, Pharaoh at this point in history was the most powerful man in the world. He is the ruler of the one superpower. He is the most important leader. In fact, so much so that the Egyptians would consider him deity. He was actually looked upon as sons of the gods himself, which would make him a a god. And we see that he rises up, and during this time, the Israelites are continuing to be blessed. It's really amazing. They're growing They're multiplying. It's estimated that there were some 600,000 Hebrew men in in Egypt at that point in time. And when you hear that, 600,000, you think, well, that doesn't sound like that much. 600,000 men. If there are that many men, there are at least that many women. And if you get that many men and women together, there are going to be a whole lot of little boys. There are going to be a whole lot of little girls, a whole lot of kids. So this is a great number. 
And because of that, this new Pharaoh, who is a son of a God, at least seen by his people to be that, we watch as insecurity begins to develop within his heart. We watch him as fear. Isn't that amazing? A son of a God who would be, be overcome with fear so much so that he makes the decision that something has to happen with these people. Their number is so great. And so the conclusion that he comes to is that he will enslave them. They're no longer guests. They're no longer shown favor. Now they will be treated as inferior. Now they will be made to serve, you heard it, with rigor. This is not easy work. Pharaoh longs to crush God's people. They are something less. And then over the years, being told that, they might have even began to believe it about themselves. I want you to know this today, that as we unfold the story of Pharaoh in our mind, We've seen it in cartoons. We've heard it retold over and over again. And maybe you've even seen dramatic presentations of the fact. But plain and simple, Pharaoh's plan was to break God's people. His desire was to crush them, as I said before. He literally longed to work them to death. And in this, we notice a downward spiral of evil. That begins. You do know today that evil unchecked always gets worse. I'm going to say that again. We need to be reminded in our day because we, as God's people, have remained silent too long. It's easy to complain about what's going on, it's even easy to claim a political affiliation. But it's harder to be the men and women of the kingdom that we are called to be. And we are reaping what we have sown. Evil unchecked will always get worse and worse. What's the old saying? Bad becomes better when worse comes along. How do we get there? Compromise. Compromise after compromise. And literally what it is, it's the death spin of culture. It's the death spin of who we are. It really gets to the nature of sin itself. And we see it displayed in full display here in our text because the destruction of the Israelites was Pharaoh's goal. That's what he longed to do. Not only... Does evil unchecked get worse and worse? But evil will always look to eliminate life. Think about that. It did not begin with Pharaoh, and it hasn't ended. But since this is where we are in the story, we watch him as he gives the command to kill the children, the first command to kill the boys. It's not only with Pharaoh, but you remember in the New Testament, Herod. What is the wicked scheme that he comes up with? Kill all the boys. Why? Because he feared that the Messiah would appear. And so his solution was to destroy life. It's the way that it always goes. Come to modern age. We see it over and over again. Hitler. 
Stalin, Mao Zedong, Kim Jong-il. I mean, it is the way that it always goes. The list could go on and on, but I'm just trying to get you to see evil always looks to destroy, always looks to eliminate life. And Pharaoh wanted to do this with God's people. He wanted to end them, but they flourished. Isn't that impressive? The reason why it's important to see that he worked them so hard because he thought, well, if I work them so hard in the field, they won't, if, if their days, if I wear them out during the day, they won't have any life in the night. Come on, someone chuckled, they got it a little bit. Not being, I, I mean, this is the whole goal. Crush them, but they Flourish. So this forces Pharaoh to devise another plan. And it's in this plan that we meet our heroines today. So you may think that they're just chorus members in the divine drama. No, no, they are truly main characters. They are hero heroines in the story of God's redemption of his people. Shifra and Pua, the midwives, as we said to the Hebrews, the ones, as I've already stated, that were considered probably to be head midwives that would help with childbirth, Pharaoh summons them. Now, we don't have that all spelled out, but in order for him to communicate with them, there would be a summons. So here they are, these subservient women to a subservient race of women Standing before the most powerful man in the world, a God himself considered by his own people. And he commands them, a command, made by, you understand, must be obeyed. He says when you give birth, when you aid the Hebrew women in childbirth, if they have a boy, and remember, they were the ones that would first see. And it's a little misleading because we read about a birth stool. Really what it is is two big rocks that they would put their legs on. It would be easy to bash one's head. It would be easy to do all this. And when you see them on there, if it's a boy, then you have to kill that boy. If it's a woman, if it's a girl, let her live. But if it's a boy, kill him. Isn't that awful? That's the command that these women are given by the most powerful man in the world. The man who literally, it's not too strong to say it, would hold their lives in his hand. Kill the newborn boys. But this is what Pharaoh didn't realize. As he thought of himself as a small g god, Shifra and Pua feared the one true God. And it's an interesting picture to me because I've already mentioned that many believe that they were Egyptian. It really is unclear whether they were Hebrew or not. But somehow they had become acquainted with this Hebrew God. Somehow they had heard the story. Somehow they had sensed the reality of who he was. 
I, I don't know. Was it from the women that they had helped in childbirth in the past? Was it the stories of how Joseph's people came to Egypt land and all the things that had happened? I, I don't know. But they, it's, it's clear through Scripture, they did not fear Pharaoh so much. They feared God. They knew the one who really held their lives in his hand. And so because of that, they made a bold decision to stand to power. They disobeyed Pharaoh, the Egyptian God, for the creator of the universe, the God of the Hebrews. And because of that, God honored them. I want you to see that. And I want you to understand, it, it, it sounds, you've heard of it. You never go wrong when you do what's right. Do you understand that? It's just something that you can take as a side point. You never go wrong. And sometimes, you know, you're put in these circumstances and you have this dilemma and you're wondering, which, hear me on this. You never go wrong. You never have, you never will go wrong by doing what is right. God honors Shifra and Pua. See, when we watch them refusing to, to kill, to destroy life, the male children, and when we see them as their role as midwives, they didn't simply birth humanity. They had a large role in playing in the birth of the redemption of God's people because from here is where the story of Moses begins to unfold. You could say, not only did they play a major role, but it kind of begins with them. And it's so powerful to see this. They are named. We are able to see their significance because the stand that they took, they stood with those who had no voice because of their fear of God. And because of that, their names are recorded for every generation. See, names matter. Names are important. To be named is a big deal. And the reverse is true as well. To have your name blotted out was inconceivable. It was terrible. Remember what Psalm 9.5 says. You have rebuked the heathen. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever to have your name erased mattered to be recorded was significant see this is what i want you to see this is why i wanted to read all the way to verse 10 of chapter 2 because between the listing of the sons of jacob all the way down to the naming of moses the only specific names we receive, the only ones who are identified by their names are Shifra and Pua, are these midwives. Out of 28 lines of anonymity, <laughs> I can't say things, can I? You know what I'm talking about. Out of 28 lines where you read things like Pharaoh's daughter or this or that, you read their name. 
And it's really interesting because when you think about Pharaoh, I've said that he was the most important man, the most powerful man in this day. In fact, you read the title Pharaoh or the king of Egypt some 107 times in the book of Exodus. And yet, even though you read Pharaoh, even though you read the king of Egypt, not once in God's book is his name recorded. Now, we're able to go back and, and search throughout history, all these sorts of things. We're able to go back and we can determine what that king's name. But here's the thing. God never records his name. In other words, folks, he's been blotted out. The most powerful man in the world. We don't know who if we don't have. Are you seeing this? Their names are recorded. Not just midwives, not just head midwives. Shifra and Pua, champions of life, and God honors them because they were willing to disobey an evil command. They obeyed God. They stood for the right. They feared him, stood up for Pharaoh. They risked everything to do what he, they knew he would want, and because of that, we're talking about them today right in the middle of the Exodus story, Shifra and Pua. Isn't that amazing? I, I mean, they're right there in the middle. They didn't have an insignificant part. They played a major role in the birth of the redemption of man. The reason why I get excited about this is because I realize that every one of us here this morning, every one of us, are right in the middle of God's story. You do understand that story is still being written. And you and I are right in the middle of that story. We all have a part to play. Whether you want to assume that role or not, it may be that you feel like you're so small, you're so insignificant. In this story, there are no insignificance. Jesus is the main actor. We know that. But we all have supporting roles in this story of redemption. And since we're in the middle of God's story, we, as his people, need to choose to fear God rather than to fear man. And you, you realize when you talk about the fear of God, we're talking about this respect, this reverential awe, not necessarily knees knocking and, and trembling, I, I mean, that kind of thing. That can be part of it too. But this is a reverential awe. We fear him so much. We respect him so much that we choose his way over man's way. I'm thankful that we have a God who knows and looks at our heart. I'm thankful that we have a God who focuses upon the intent of our heart. I, I really am. 
And you understand when we talk about fearing God over people, the reason why that's so important is when we operate by fearing people, the one thing that's natural is we choose to promote ourselves. We're always trying to impress those who are around us. We're always trying. And the fear of people will always lead to self-promotion. But when you fear God, you will live a life that points to him. When you choose to fear God, you will promote him rather than promote yourself. I said it the other morning, I'll say it again. Our lives as those who have been redeemed are to be a proclamation of the Christ so the world can hear, so the world can see, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the answer. And when you fear God and live in the fear of God, our entire life promotes him. When you live in the fear of people, naturally compromise is going to occur. We're going to give a little here and we're going to give a little there. Have you noticed, instead of impacting our culture, the the culture impacts us in the church world. And I'm not knocking anything about the church world. I'm just amazed about how all these petty, how all these nonsense, unbiblical arguments that are going on in our culture have somehow become our soapboxes in the church as well. We stand on him, and everything flows from him. Not what's politically expedient, not what's popular around us. That's how we live when we fear God. Because instead of compromise, instead of bending here and there, we stand on his principles. We live within the confines of his word, and we know that if it's not in there, we don't need it. If he doesn't endorse it, then it has nothing to do with us. But see, if you fear people, those things will just go as... See, to fear God will lead us to risking all for his glory. To fear people will self-protect. Do you see that this morning? Because we are in the middle of God's story, we must fear him over man. And because we're in the middle of God's story, I'm reminded that God's kingdom, God's people, are called to honor life as God honors life. All life. And I know that oftentimes when you hear something like this, especially in the context of midwives, you think, well, we're going to jump to the abortion issue. And I'm going to tell you, that's an abomination. That's a stain on us. We'll answer for that one day. But you understand when we talk about honoring life, we're not simply talking about the unborn. We're talking about all life. That wise doctor once said, a person's a person no matter how small. You, you, Dr. Seuss? <laughs> All life. That means those who are mentally challenged. 
That means those who have nothing to give in return. Real heroes of the faith, real men and women who honor God in this story, honors life just like him. We care for the least of these. They spared the life of the helpless, and we are called to lend a helping hand. We have to value life. Remember, Proverbs 31, 8, 9. We have to stand up for those who can't stand for themselves. Jeremiah 1 through 5, 1 and 5. In Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, we must honor life. As God does, we're in the middle of God's story. So let me ask you, do you need to re-examine some things in your life when it comes to that? I'm heartbroken when I watch how we deal with one another. I thought you grew out of that in junior high school, but I'm not so sure. Well... And because we're in the middle of God's story, we have to remember, and you've heard this, blessings follow obedience. It's a principle that's taught all throughout Scripture. Blessings follow obedience. God, verse 21 of chapter 1, gave Shifra and Pua households of their own. And when you see that they have households of their own, we're not talking about a cottage on the campground of Camp Syker. We're not just talking about, you know, brick and mortar and a piece of land. No, we're talking about children of their own. And Dr. Van Zandt, you can help me with this later, but there are some that would say, and I don't know it to be true, but if it were, it's even more beautiful, is that the reason why some of these women found themselves at midwives is because they could not birth children on their own. And if that's the case, I want you to see the incredible, because you know that brought shame. Even though it's an honored position, that brings shame upon a lady, a woman of this day. And because they were willing to stand, God blessed them. God honored them with their own children, households of their own. Folks, you never go wrong by doing what's right. Obedience is always rewarded. And in our lives as God's people, faithfulness and obedience must come first. You understand that. So let me ask you, are you living a faithful life? Are you being obedient in every area of your life? Or we could say it like this. Are you completely obedient to his will and his way? Are you walking in all the light that you've been given? You want to know why we're not blessed? We're not obedient. You want to know why that we don't experience the power we once knew? It's likely because we're not being obedient in every area of our lives. See, you don't pick and choose in this thing. Blessings follow obedience. Doing the right thing matters.
you may think it goes unnoticed here. But God sees. God keeps record. And there is another book where names are recorded. I'm thankful that in his book today, we see Shifra and Pua, and we learn to fear God. We learn to honor life. We learn a lifestyle of obedience is blessed. So Jesus, this morning, may it be so in us. Deal with us throughout the day. Show us whether we live our lives in fear to you or in fear of man. Reveal to us how we show our care for the lives that are around us. And help us to be men and women who walk in true obedience, complete, real obedience to you. And because of that, be blessed. Amen. Let my life, oh Lord, pray.
Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to speak to us today, to be present. I'm going to pray that you would give us grace to, to sit with your conviction, to pay attention to your conviction through your word, through your spirit today. It's not a light word we've received, and so help us not to to miss it. Help us not to justify or explain away where we might be sensing the movement of your spirit in us. We pray, God, that you would give grace, that we would respond in faith and obedience, that we might be the kind of people whose names are worth recording right in the midst of the story of redemption that you are writing. God, help us to be faithful to fulfill our part in the story that you are calling us to play. Thank you, God, for choosing us to play a part in your story. God, send us uh, with an assurance of your grace and presence continue to discern faithful steps of obedient response, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>